scratch and smooth. Try to think of China and Yuhan as a freak and not think it'll happen again. The Bridge of Spies has overshadowed everything because it was a quadruple platinum debut album, but Rage was a platinum album. We struggled and struggled, and we had this massive success, and then it was over, mm. and, then, and then the band fell out, and then we found out that our management had not been quite as honest as we thought. All those things you read in those autobiographies, mm. it happened to us. I just think it's a very dynamic and creative era on every level. What is much better now is that I get to do exactly what I want to do. It's getting it out so people can hear it is the tricky bit, and that yeah. can be frustrating. musical fusion of T'Pau's Carol Decker and Ronnie Rogers is back with a vengeance. Not only have they produced a brand new critically acclaimed album, Pleasure and Pain, but they're also in the middle of a UK tour. With the 1980s making such a comeback over the years, with revival gigs celebrating that heady era of musical creativity, young and old fans alike have been enjoying T'Pau's music from locations ranging from Dundee to Dubai, with tracks from their immensely successful debut album, Bridge of Spies, which had a hit in the US say five in the UK, including a number one for five weeks, plus platinum and silver accolades for their next two albums. T'Pau have many wonderful tracks in their playlist to revisit, as well as some fantastic new material. Well, SMS Online were privileged enough to speak to Carol herself in the hometown of Henley-on-Thames recently to enjoy a glass of Rioja at a local hostelry, chew the fat and reflect on an amazing career to date. But firstly, let's remind ourselves of the magic that is T'Pau. Gentlemen, give a hearty scratch and sniff welcome to Carol Decker. So Carol Decker, thank you so much for joining Scratch and Sniff today. It is an absolute <laughs> honour and a privilege, and I have to thank my lovely Andy uh, for his 40th birthday, choosing a T'Pau gig, and that's why we met you. We did. That was at the um, Half Moon? Half Moon in Putney, a yeah, very great yeah, pub with yeah. good tradition of, uh, of live music. So, yeah, that was a fantastic gig. Yeah, well, we did two and sold out both nights, which I was just delighted about. And funnily enough, in my younger years, I never played there. I did play the Marquee and Dingwalls, which were the kind of other smaller gigs on the circuit. So it was very cool to to rock it out, it really was. Excellent stuff. So you've been a singer, both in the group and as a solo artist. You've been a presenter, an actor, and even a landlady. And now you're back, more powerful than ever, with a brand new album. But this time, you're a wife and a mother too. When does it ever stop for Carol to Pal Decker? Yeah, I should have my, uh, my cape on and my, my <laughs> underpants over my tights, shouldn't I? Like most women, I'm just spinning yeah. a lot of 
plates. Um, life just evolves, doesn't mm. it? You know, and I've been luckily uh, lucky with the sort of notoriety or fame or whatever you want to call it that the big hits of Tapao brought me that I get offered opportunities and you know people yeah. say do you want to have a go at this do you want to have a go at that so I did some West End acting yes. um, in Mum's Word with um, Patsy Palmer Imogen Stubbs and Jenny Eclair and Kathy Tyson that was brilliant and that is fantastic achievement yeah. on top of everything else yeah it was and it was a great ensemble cast I couldn't believe I got the part and it wasn't a musical mm. it was just a straightforward yeah. um, comedy play so that was great and around that time, I did some other bits and bobs of acting, just daytime dramas like Doctors. Mm -hmm. and, and I did this um, kids' TV show called Star, okay. starring Nicholas Holt, okay. who's gone on to not only be one of the biggest stars, but shag Jennifer Lawrence for about four years. <laughs> so I'm thinking, oh, and I knew him when he was 14, you know. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So you've got this extra career. And one thing I was going to ask you a lot later, but seeing we're talking about mm. now, are you enjoying now? far more than you were enjoying the height of your success? No, because at the height of my success, I was on private jets and limousines and I wouldn't be stuck in a pub with the likes of you. <laughs> well, that's charming, that is, that is absolutely um, true. Right, it's a bit of a mix. Look, you know, when we were young and thrusting and the hot new ticket, we were selling out Wembley Arena and you've got... Um, a big record company bankrolling you so you, you're on the telly and you've got all the publicity campaigns and you get a lot of attention for your music and and um you know we were talking off air earlier about having kind of the validation of yeah, some sort absolutely. of money behind you and and that kind of acknowledgement and we were able to get up in your grill with our staff because we had that organization behind us so i do miss that what is much better now is that i get to do exactly what i want to do it's Getting it out so people can hear it is the tricky bit, and that yeah. can be frustrating. Yeah. But, but in the modern world, I would have thought easier than it would have been, say, 30 years ago with the internet, and, that, and you've got your own record label as well, so you're yeah. much more in control. I'm in much more control, and but it, it's, it involves a lot of work that I don't like doing. I mean, this is just a very personal thing. I'm a singer and a songwriter, and I don't really want to sit in front of the computer all day doing Twitter and Facebook and all the things that I now have to do. But I can't really afford to employ an entire team. You know what right. I mean? A lot of it you have to do it yourself. And that's how you get the information out there. So it's great that the way the business is disassembled um, works in one way, um, but not in others. For example, there is no more Top of the Pops. What there are is 500 bloody MTV channels that I don't know which one to watch. You know well, most I mean? of them have um, that Cardigan family on, don't they? I mean, I, they don't even have pop music on anymore. Oh, uh, you know what? It's funny you should mention the Cardigan family, <laughs> the, the biggest asses in the world family. I've never um, watched it. I've never watched well, it. Well, I've watched it for the first time properly the last two nights, so this okay. is quite... Oh, right, yeah. go on then. And I'm always late to the table, you know, late to the party, rather. I, I discovered Breaking Bad after the, sort of 10 years after the rest of the world. But um, I suddenly thought a bit kind of Sylvia Plath bell jar. I'm going to take a look at it and see what the fascination mm. is. And it's depressing. Yeah. Mm. And they're worth millions. Mm. And that, I'm not jealous. Well, I'm probably jealous of the attention they get. I'd love to get one of my albums that amount of attention. <laughs> but it's mind-boggling yeah. isn't it and and so um prophetic when andy warhol said you know someday everybody will yeah. be famous for 15 minutes mm, for nothing mm. in particular yes. and yeah. i don't know the kardashians and they're probably perfectly nice stupid women <laughs> but it's depressing it is depressing you know yeah. and i think paris hilton was the first wasn't she the first famous for being famous yeah, and I mean, where's she now, eh? That's reality showbiz. <laughs> she has a good point. I haven't heard from her in a few years, yeah, so she's um, probably done with it. You know, she's yeah. probably done with it. But it's just—it's mind-boggling that people can be so famous for nothing. Let's just take it back initially to talk, because we like to cover the whole story yeah. in Scratch and Sniff. Those early salad days, uh, your home life, your parents, etc. And, um, mm. and uh, what music were you tapping your feet to at home that was uh, going to influence you later? Well, when I was quite young, you know, uh, like preteen, um, definitely influenced by my parents' record collection. <laughs> which was eclectic and huge, and my, both my parents loved music. My mum had been a singer, my dad was a great pianist. They put their dreams aside to lead a more conventional life, but they were both really good at it. No and of course, 
they had the pop bands of the day, like the Stones and the Beatles, we heard all that, and then... Rolling Who. The Rolling Who. Uh, actually, we weren't a Who family. Okay. No, we weren't a Who family. And uh, Dusty Springfield. Oh. The only one who could ever reach me was the son of a preacher man. And then my dad loved, we had all the Tambler stuff, and my dad loved um, being a great pianist. He loved a lot of jazz, jazz piano. So we had Earl Garner playing all the time. And then singers, he loved um, Ella Fitzgerald. I thought I'd found the man of my dream. All of that, and lots of opera. Uh, so lots of strong women. Yeah, strong women and big voices, which is why I thought I had to shout my head off to be considered a good singer. So every when I listen to my early recordings, particularly on British Spies, it's high and it's hard, because I thought that's what made you a good singer, but it's quite a high bar to set, I can tell you. you know. um, and I've, lear- I've just learnt to use the other aspects and characteristics of my voice now. I've gotten mm. older, I've got the confidence to do that. Was before I just thought, it all had to be like that! <laughs> you know, um, so then when I developed my own musical taste and, and moved on from that, um, I was quite the disco queen. And when punk was going on, I just thought it was really vulgar. I didn't understand it, all that spitting. Oh, me too. I was into Jean-Michel Jarre and all weird stuff. Yeah, that <laughs> is weird. Well, I, am, but yeah. I was a Doctor Who fan, you see. Yeah, yeah, that is very weird. Yeah, no, I liked... Um, I can't, probably can't even remember who I liked, but people like Tavares and Sheik. <laughs> you know, and I love Jacksons and the Pointer Sisters. I was really into all of that and I thought they were brilliantly produced. They still stand up now and you listen to them. And then when I hit the kind of moving across from the late 70s into the early 80s, I moved into a lot of the British scene, which was Pretenders, Joe Jackson. I love Dire Straits, the first Dire Straits album. And then Kim Wilde. All of the early 80s Brit thing was just incredible. Because, of course, in the early 80s, you you had success, uh, I think 87 was British Spies, wasn't it? So, of course, all this early 80s, this was your preparation. This was you becoming becoming a woman and and all the rest of it. I've since gone on to discover I'm actually older than all of them because <laughs> I didn't get my record deal till I was 28. But, I, you know, and, and all the big 80s shows I do now, they say, oh, isn't it great to reconnect with... And I went, I didn't know them. I was watching them on the telly like you were, yeah, you know. Absolutely. Now, many bands these days are assembled by ads in the paper. Well, I mean, that's not a new thing. But, boy but, bands. Boy bands. And assemble. <laughs> but um, my understanding is that um, you were all mates at, at the same school. Have I got that right? Completely wrong. Okay, go on then. Yeah. Uh, no, my first band uh, I was in called The Lasers, and I was uh, 22. I'd gone back to art school as a mature student at 21, and uh, always singing to, along to the radio, and, but no, never really thought... Um, Never thought of it as a career, just didn't think it was practical. So, so what sort of career options were you considering then? Well, when I was doing A-levels, I wanted to be a journalist, but okay. I completely screwed up my A-levels. I failed them miserably. Mm. I did as well, actually, yeah. just to let you know. <laughs> yeah, look at you now. Look at me now. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I didn't go to university, didn't go to journalistic college, and all my friends went off, because I went to quite a, a good girls' grammar school, so mm. all my mates went off to uni and college and whatever. And I didn't know what to do, so I just bummed around. I went au pairing in, in Holland for a year with my, for my uncle. Then when I came back, again, just dosed, worked in cafes and bars, and then a friend of mine was going back to art school. And I'd always been sort of okay at art, so I got a quick portfolio together and kind of blagged my way into the Wakeman School of Art in Shrewsbury. And in that environment, started meeting that different kind of person. And then I realised I could use my voice, you know. So went to a party, met a guy called Julian Ward, got an audition, joined his band, was in that band for about a year, and then recruited Ronnie Rogers from another local Shrewsbury band called The Cats. And then Ronnie and I started writing for the band we were in. Then we left that band and just wrote. And my father bought us a little home recording studio 
So your parents were supportive of, of this totally. quite unusual path to go down. Completely. My parents, like I said, I, I think I was... They weren't pushy showbiz parents by any stretch of the imagination, but they mm -hmm. certainly, I think, wanted me to succeed because it's something they'd set aside to, mm -hmm. to provide for the family, yes. you know. Um, so, yeah, and, and, and so Ronnie and I were basically slogging away, sending demos... Uh, gigging in a covers band to pay the rent, all that kind of thing. Ron was a, a sound engineer. I was in and out of dead-end jobs, bar work. I even signed on and worked in the bar at the same time. <gasps> right. Send the police around. Yeah, but there you go. Uh, we all do what we have to to survive, don't we? Oh, totally, totally. Yeah, and then I finally got a deal management when I was 26 and a deal when I was 28, so I was geriatric by the time. <laughs> I had no idea. I didn't realise you, you, you were older when it all yeah, happened. Yeah, but the, uh, sorry, I didn't really answer your question. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so I met Ron and then we put power together out of guys we'd known in Shrewsbury that we liked. So there was the keyboard player, Michael Chetwood. The bass player, um, Paul Jackson. And then the London management we now had introduced us to lots of new musicians that we'd been using on our demos in London. And we had Taj Wisgowski, who did all the work, all the guitar work on Bridge of Spies. And Tim Burgess was our drummer. But we didn't really know each other at all, no. But it was a more organic process. Yeah. It, it, there was a sort of sense of community about, about the whole... The we whole... built it. We built it together. Ronnie and I built it. And then recruited really, really good musicians. Uh, but yeah, we, we built it ourselves. Uh, we were introduced to musicians. I don't know how different that is to being put in a band with musicians. You know, I'm not a snob about mm. how anyone gets it together and gets mm. their, their toe through the door. Mm. It's just how good you are. You know, if I was 19 now, I'd probably be in that queue for the X Factor. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not being snotty about it. writing your own material so how how did that work for you was it lyrics first or music first or did you write one line and then your partner wrote the next one um i i usually do all the lyrics with ron critiquing mm -hmm. and ron usually does all the music with me critiquing right. so we poke our nose in and go that bit could be better but we tend to have kind of pre-designated roles mm -hmm. you know um and in terms of ideas for songs, it, it can be any which way. For example, Heart and Soul, we wrote, we had a new toy, courtesy of my father's financing, bless him. And we had this new um, state-of-the-art keyboard that had an inbuilt sequencer. So Ron starts messing around with the sequence and he's going, pressing buttons, and the next thing we've got, dum, 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 which is the bass line to Heart and Soul. So we wrote a whole song around a sequence. China in your hand. I had a story. I'd watched a documentary on telly about Mary Shelley writing the book about Frankenstein. And I loved it was Wheels Within Wheels because um, she was married to Percy Bysshe Shelley. They, all, they hung out with Lord Byron. At age 19, she has basically a pulp fiction smash in Frankenstein that blows all of their effete poetry and essays out of the window. It caused lots of jealousies. Broke their whole circle apart. There were loyalties and jealousies. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why the opening lyric is... It was a theme she had on a scheme he had. So her theme was the scheme that the doctor had for Frankenstein. So, so I had a, a, a whole story and almost an essay for China in your hand. But other times, it's just a noise. We make a noise and we go, hey, make that noise again. And I start humming something <laughs> over the top of it, you know. Carol, let's hear your triumphant signature track, China in your hand. What do you reckon? Do it. Take a life on earth to the second birth and the 
version of Tapao's epic classic China in Your Hand. You're listening to SNS Online with my special guest, Carol Decker. And if you want to contact us about this or any other show, then please join our Facebook page, which is SNS Online, or Twitter, which is Scratch and Tweet. Past shows can be downloaded for free and enjoyed via SoundCloud by searching for SNS Online or Mixcloud by searching for me, Nick Randall. The name Tapau. Live long in Gloucester, Carol. <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. And because that's funny, I forgive you for asking me that tedious question. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Me, me and Andy are big Trekkie fans. We love Captain Janeway. Do it. And uh, we, we could see you in the Star Trek outfit. In, oh, in, really? the, pro, in the appropriate in nice capacity. Yeah, we are, we are yeah. whoopsies, of course. Um, well, I was Captain <laughs> Janeway. I precede you on of Captain James T. Kirk. Oh, I'm him as well. Yeah. And I have to say, from time to time, William Shatner chats to me on Twitter, which is does the biggest he? buzz. He doesn't follow me, but he does talk back to me. Yeah. I'll show you a photo of me and William Shatner together later, just to Ooh. make you jealous, but there you go. Well, I had a signed picture of Leonard Nimoy, that's pr- that's which good. my that's record good. producer got for me, and it said, uh, to, to, to Carol, live long and prosper, Leonard Nimoy. And I'd never got around to framing it, and it was gathering lots of dust, so one day, I was dusting at home in London and I had some pledge or Mr Sheen on my duster and I dusted the photograph and the inscription came clean off. Oh, no. And there wasn't even a... It hadn't even made an indent because it was a marker so I couldn't go over it. So, so then I just had a picture of Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, dear. It could be worth a fortune, couldn't it? <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, so... Um, we had the album done, Bridges Buys. It's in the can. Yeah. The release date's all settled. The lineup is confirmed in the band. We're all ready to go. We don't have a name. And I was quite uh, democratic in that I wanted everyone to agree that they enjoyed working under this name. And, mm. and I was in my flat in Shrewsbury doing the ironing, believe it or not. <laughs> and had, no, I believe it. Yeah, had uh, Star Trek on, on the background, and this just kept going to pow, to pow, to pow. Live long to pow. 
prosper. Live long and prosper, Spock. You know, I thought, I really like that word. It's really onomatopoeic, you know. Mm. And uh, then they spelled it, T-A-P-O-S-P-O-P-O-U. And I said to the band, what do you think of T-A-P-O-U? And there were some wrinkled noses, but no one really objected. So it, it was the name that everyone hated the least. But I love it because it's very 80s. It's very sort of punchy, T-A-P-O-U. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could have been called yeah. Mind Meld, and that would have taken you down a very different path, possibly. Or Klingon. Or Klingon. <laughs> Not good. But she had a sister called T-Pring. Oh, what, in Star Trek? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I do believe that T'Pau was Mr. Spock's paternal grandmother. Ah, okay. I'm, just I'm thinking... sure some Trekkie will write to us both. And I'm just thinking if I had a, if I had a junior version of T'Pau, you know, like with S-Club juniors, <laughs> you could call them that. So I'm just being facetious, sure. right? We'll move on from this one. Um, I'm going to ask you a serious question now, Carol. Um, Heart and Soul was your breakthrough hit and famously broke through into the USA first, yeah. which is a fantastic achievement. Let's talk through that and uh, when you found out and everything. Okay, well, it was released in the UK first and it went to number 98 and straight out of the charts. And we thought it was all over. And our record company, we were um, signed to Siren Virgin, so a subsidy of Virgin, but Virgin kind of mothered us across the rest of the world and David Bettridge our MD when he heard Bridge of Spies hated it he hated the mixes he hated the amount of compression that Roy Thomas Baker had put on the the album which did make it sound almost slightly distorted on your stereo but oh my god did it work on radio and Roy was used to mixing for American radio Queen Motley Crue the Cars. He'd done massive hits with all these bands. Can't you just have two versions of it? Well I don't know. At great expense probably but that yeah. wouldn't have been practical. Sure. And uh, so it goes in at number 98, straight out again. We think we're going to get dropped. And then two things happened. One, Pepe Jeans picked the song up for the cinema commercial in the UK, which was very cool for us. And America loved Heart and Soul. So we got a reprieve. It went up the charts to number four, which is incredible, and then stayed on the Billboard chart for nearly four months. Amazing. Just going down a bit, back up, down a bit, back up. Then we got a reprieve back home. And it got re-released and it went to number four in the UK and it also went top five almost everywhere it was released. That is fantastic. And I think that's a very appropriate time to hear Heart and Soul.
Howl's Heart and Soul, which was a smash hit on both sides of a pond. You're listening to Scratch and Sniff with me, Nick Randall, with my special guest, Carol Decker. Bridge of Spies sold more than 1.2 million copies in the UK alone, yeah. um, which is fantastic. And obviously following up Heart and Soul in the USA particularly was notoriously yeah. difficult. Why do you think your signature song, China in Your Hand, never made it there? Because I'm baffled. I don't know. Um, what we got told at the time was, I don't know if it's like that in America now, but back then... All the radio stations, and there were then about 5,000 radio stations across... Don't forget, it's a continent, not a country. Yes. And you can, you can have a big hit one side of the country. It means Jack, the other side. When we were on tour, we were doing really well in some towns and playing to a, an empty bar mm. the other side of the country. You just couldn't care less, you know. So um, we got told with China that the radio stations were saying, oh, what, so they're not a rap band, so what are they? Are they a rock band? Are they a, a, um, a, you know, a ballad band? Or are they a rap band? And they needed to, you needed to say, we're this and yeah. stay in your box. Mm. And we are, and I'm sure as a fan, you know, yeah. we're very eclectic in our yeah, songwriting totally. style. Well, mm. you can't do that. You couldn't do that in the States then. Now, home we could. At home Did you think about singing with a warble and calling it country? Because, I mean, your voice would suit... Pretty well everything. Everybody says that. I should do a country record. Yeah. Totally. Boy George said that to me. Oh, he, said, so, he said, so when's your country record coming out? Totally. Um, <laughs> stand by your me. Oh, I love it. <laughs> but anyway, so that's what we got told. Mm. And it's difficult to write to a formula. Yeah, and and at the time, Virgin America, uh, the, the CEO, Jeff Aroff, was all about modify what you do to fit in. Mm. They want another heart and soul. Give them another heart and soul. And we just couldn't. We yeah. didn't. I can't. I'm not a, I'm not a professional songwriter. So these teams of people that write for Beyonce and Avril Lavigne and Kylie, and they have mm. a real skill set I don't have. Yeah. And, and I can't do that. It's what I do comes from my heart. Yeah. And it's, it's erratic. It's eclectic, sometimes it's really good, sometimes it's really rubbish, and that's just the way it is. There's someone looking back at you, watching everything you do, it's the mirror man. Something's ringing in your ears. So in terms of all the hits you've had, uh, from Bridge of Spies, what would you be your favourite? I mean, obviously, China in Hand is, is massive, um, but any others for, how about you have a particular fondness for? Hits or tracks? Uh, to be honest, either. Okay. I think that it's important right. that what um, works for you. The, the, the coolest song I think we ever wrote out of the old stuff is Heart and Soul. Okay. Um, I love Man and Woman off The Promise. Okay. I think that's really cool. Take a man and woman Put Purity of the promise is, is um, a little moment for me lecturing the world about things to come, which I, I think is good. Don't wanna grow. To our dream from Rage, okay. I think I love that, and they use that once for the Tour de France, and I was just so flattered because it is about endeav endeavor. Yes, you know? that's fantastic. Yeah.
so yeah, there's lo lots of different songs that mm. I'm really proud of what I've had to say, mm. but it doesn't always make it a hit. No, well, I don't. I don't think it has to. I mean, it's nice for the financial side and all yeah. that, but no, I'm. I, yeah, absolutely. But you need the profile of a hit, you know. You well, to, 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 to be able to do that, yeah. indulge. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, okay, introduce a track of yours that you'd like from those beautiful from those heady days. days. From the good old bad old days, let's go. Um, I love. I will be with you. Your year, career-wise, presumably it's going to be 1987, yeah? Yeah, I mean, 87, 88, we, we sort of did it all. We were 
I toured with Nick Kershaw. I toured with Brian Adams. We were touring oh, the result. States. We go to number one, not just in the UK, but loads of places. Yeah. China, we went to mm. number one. Um, we were at number one for three weeks in Holland, for mm. example. You know, it was crazy. Um, and all of a sudden, everybody wants a piece of you. It, it's just you, your dreams come true times ten. It's mm. almost a bit much to take in. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I was doing Princess Trust concerts, mm. standing, chatting with George Harrison, uh, Roger Daltrey, Elton John, all these people congratulating me, shaking my hand. It's just, I just couldn't get over myself. You know, I probably had a mile-wide grin and... It was just absolutely amazing. Um, met Debbie Harry. Hello, oh, hello, hello. Met Debbie. Goddess, Harry. goddess. Yes, goddess. Yeah. Um, and being in the successful band in the eighties seems to have been like you know being members of some amazing exclusive club. Yes. That plus having a number one album yeah. and single. Um, were there times when you could just allow yourself to soak it all in, or was it just a relentless blur? Yeah, it was a relentless blur. Okay. We didn't stop. One time we, we were on the uh, on the road for seventeen months. Wow, that is a long time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously we, we, we'd be back a day or so, but more or less, you know, mm. we didn't stop. Mm. And um, needless to say, every marriage in the band folded. And I think mm. me and Ronnie stayed strong because we were together. Mm. If, if he was in the band and I wasn't, or I was in the band and he wasn't, mm. I think we would have folded too because yeah. it just it took over your life, yeah. you know. But you, you two have stayed strong as friends long term anyway. Have, I mean, otherwise yeah. it wouldn't have worked out, this whole reunion. Yeah, we have. it, And it was, um, it was hard when we broke up. We'd been together for 13 years and that's, it was, it was hard, hard on both of us. But we just reached a point where we weren't giving each other anything anymore. Mm. Um, and I think we probably both look back upon it and think it's probably a bit of a shame even though we're both now happily married we've got our yes. kids and we say great but i don't i'm never going to look back oh one day we'll look back and laugh you know mm. it was horrible to yeah. we were each other's everything best mm. friends colleagues lovers you know we lost his mum we lost my dad we went through so much together mm. and then the whole to power thing we struggled and struggled and we had this massive success and then it was over mm. and then and then the band fell out and then we found out that our management had not been quite as honest as we thought they oh, were. There we go, it took yes. Years to get the money back and mm. all those things you read in those autobiographies, mm. it happened to us. Yeah, yeah. So we it was a really tough time for me and Ron and we just had to let the dust settle on it yeah. and then return as friends. Yeah. And good friends, very good friends, yeah. Um he's gigging in Henley on Tuesday. Oh, is he? Yeah. What, something else? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got his own band called the Ronaldos. Oh, oh you guys have got to check it out. Um, I think it's the Ronaldos.com. And they are um, just um, a semi acoustic lineup. They do all the covers, oh, yeah. they do fantastic albums, they have double bays. Ron's hysterical. When I first met Ron, he fronted his own band. And one of the things I found really attractive about him was that he was very witty and wonderful frontman, mm. which you don't see when he's on stage with me. He's, he's like this silent <laughs> rhythm guitarist support person. He's I'm got like, your voice and your hair to compete with. I yeah? know, but when he's with his own band, the Ronaldos, they are stunning. And we're speaking today in Henley on Thames, and uh, they'll be here. They'll be here very, very soon. So we're going to have a pint. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about those amazing days in the 80s. I mean, I, I was a student around that time, but I mean, I remember Lou Peter, Saturday morning TV. And you were part of the whole thing, but now yeah. iconic TV centre. Tell us just a little bit about, about, you know, going on all those shows. Well, it was so exciting because most of them I was going on shows I'd watched myself. Yeah. So when we were on Blue Peter and when we were on Top of the... To, oh, top to of get the, on Top of the Pops. We start off with a band who've got a new album called The Promise, which is coming out in June. They're in the charts at number 20 with Whenever You Need Me. It's to Pal! Outrageous. First time, I think I had nervous diarrhoea all day. <laughs> and then you're on there with, with, one day, Paul and Linda McCartney were there with Wings, and they came up to me. They were staring at me all through my rehearsal process, and I'm going, oh, my God. And I was 
Well, I was fluctuating from, oh my God, they're watching me through to, yeah, I'm so hot, even Paul McCartney's <laughs> watching me. And watch and learn, Beatle, watch and learn. <laughs> and um, anyway, they came up to me and said, sorry, we didn't mean to stare and intimidate. It's just that you remind us so much of our daughter, because, you know, Stella oh, is a redhead. And, yeah. That's lovely. So I end up, and you remember the old BBC building, because I know you yes, work for me. Yes, you get lost. If you, yeah. you get drunk, you walk in one direction. Remember it was on a big circle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they had the most awful cafeterias with the worst coffee <laughs> in polystyrene cups. Yes. So me Terry and Wogan's made that coffee famous. Yeah, yeah. Me, so me and Linda sit down and Paul goes off and queues for the coffee. Right. Comes back. <laughs> and for quite a few years, um, Paul and Linda, we were very friendly and Linda would send me a calendar each Christmas of all her photography. And, oh, wow. And Paul, I'd go to do's and I'd see Paul across a, a room and I would never go and bother him thinking, oh, God, how many people bother him? And he... Spot, he'd always spot me, give me a wave and just say, give me a sec. Oh, he finishes interview, or whatever yeah. he's talking to, and come over and say, mm. how are you doing, Carol? Mm. Just fantastic manners, and he, he, mm. he just can talk to a cat or a king, never forgot you, you know, he's just wonderful. So, top of the pops. That's lovely to you. No, it's just lovely. And then, um, funnily enough, I met last week, I was out having lunch with my good friend Janet Ellis. <laughs> Yeah, yes. she's my good pal. And the daughter's pretty rocking pretty rockin', too. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, and um, we were having lunch, and this guy came up and shook Janet's hand, and they did shave his kiss. He says, "Carol, I know you don't remember me," he said, "but I used to produce number fifty-seven. Number fifty-seven. That was, that was shot out on the uh, as a morning show. Hey you, hey you, get ready, get on your feet, get into gear, and hit the street. Hey you. That wasn't the one with... Um, was it number 72? Have, no, I got, I, have I got the number wrong? Yeah, you have. Because it What's was it had that woman called Ethel in it. And yeah. Ethel was played oh by... Um, oh, ye gods. I don't know. What is it? Oh, I've got the numbers wrong. See you in a moment. Uh, anyway, so... What's her name? It's going to annoy me. Anyway, it was number 72. And that was live vocal at 8 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and you can imagine how well behaved we'd been the night before. Because yeah. I used to get you down there the night before, put you in a hotel and we'd get absolutely shit-faced and then I'd have this, and I'd have this baritone voice after all the wine at 8 o'clock in the morning. It's so funny. Brilliant. Um, oh, we've got to get that name. I'm sure it's number 72. So get down to 73. Get down to 73. Hey, you get down to 73. Then also there was the Roxy up in, New, up in Newcastle. I remember Roxy, yeah. And everybody talking about the Roxy. Did you do any BBC ones like going live and kicking and all that? You must have done those. We're just going live. Oh, well, fantastic. Yeah, I couldn't find it on YouTube. We had almost a residency on going live. <laughs> on almost every week. We would post the tube. I never got to do the oh, tube, yeah, which I would love yeah. to have done. Yeah. Would have been fab. Standing on sort of gantries and looking cool. Yeah. Isn't it? But basically, uh, with the exception of newer shows like uh, Number Seventy Two, Down to Seventy Three, Hey You, I was Sandy Toxic. I love Sandy. Toxic. Yeah, that was she. So she funny. was she played the character called yeah. Ethel in it, yeah. and it was her house. Yeah, so there you go. We met the producer 25 years later last week. Isn't that crazy? How funny is that? But to end up on shows that you'd watched your whole life and grown up with was just mm. amazeballs. Because you had quite a big feature on Blue Peter with uh, Mark Curry. Butter Pops is broadcast on Thursdays but recorded on Wednesdays. By 11 o'clock, the studio must be ready for action. What we need to do is put these cards in the basement dressing rooms. I can cope with that. Okay. Right. Dressing room 125, cold cut. Good band. Dressing room 126, bomb the base. And then, 133, wow, Tapao, China in your hand. At 12 o'clock, half an hour late, Tapao arrived, the band I'd been asked to look after for the day. Carol and Ronnie, Mike, Paul, Tim, and Dean, who I'd met when he took part in Blue Peter. You turned up an hour late? Yeah. Oh, I noticed he's. <laughs> that wouldn't have been my fault. <laughs> no, I think your car broke down yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. No, I would not have been, like, having my hair done and insisting my dressing room is redecorated <laughs> but um, I would have done if you there's the Canadian version of Rage which was our second platinum album 
they did some remixes for, for Canada and it has a different cover and there's a close-up of Tim Burgess's our drummer's jacket mm -hmm. and it's just they've taken the texture of the leather jacket and on his lapel is a blue Peter badge given to him by the beautiful gorgeous Karen Keating oh yeah she was lovely she, she was, was lovely, lovely. Now, also, uh, the smash hits perception of the time was you all had this big rivalry going on, different bands and stuff. Was that a load of b basically? I mean, were you generally, when you were on the shows together, you were probably quite sociable then? No, not really. We were definitely quite competitive on the Okay. Yeah, and, um, you know, you wanted to know that your single was going to do better than theirs. We were all very, very competitive. So when I um, compare that now to when I do all the big 80s festivals, it couldn't be more different. Yeah, it's absolutely. collegiate, collaborative, yeah. anything else being with C you care to mention. Uh, we have, we've all got kids, yeah. mortgages to pay, mm. can't believe we're all still working 30 years later. <laughs> but no, back then it was absolutely, mm. no, I want to stamp on you, you know. But do you think that was partially the press getting you all riled up and you were buying into all that a bit? Yeah, yeah. probably. Definitely, because they used to pit us against Wet, Wet, Wet and then Jericho. Okay. Oh, uh, all the time, yeah. yeah. And, uh, of course, we were much better than either of those men. <laughs> I always thought Wet, Wet, Wet were a massively successful pub band. Okay. <laughs> You're listening, boys. <laughs> Do you want right reply for that? <laughs> no, I used to love them. I have a point yeah, yeah. with them regularly, but I, they probably didn't like our music either, but I just didn't dig, dig what they did at all. Scratch and Sniff Online With Nick Randall What about festivals and stuff like that um, And uh, you know big uh, Big events at the time um, We didn't do that many festivals Back then and they tended to be in Europe We certainly didn't get on the UK festivals Because we weren't cool enough okay. I know that probably Reading was going And Glasgow was going but mm. Tapau Was not, we were never booked for that We were too pop I think for them, but in Europe we used to do festivals like Roskilde, which mm. were like forty thousand or something. Mm, mm. But they were more friendly; they were really quite friendly. Mm. And in America, we did quite a few festivals, and again, they were very friendly. We were chatting away with the people backstage, but we never got booked on those cool UK festivals. Didn't Radio One have like open days or not open days? Uh, but Radio One road show. Road shows. I used to, I went to one of those in Norwich with Kid Jensen. All a bit shit, to be honest. <laughs> They really were a bit shit, and you just mimed and jumped up, and it's like being a Butlin's red coat or something. You know? <laughs> no, no, to power were never cool in the eyes of the music press. Um, we were too mainstream, really, you know. So, so Carol, 1988, and you were faced with some might say the daunting task of that difficult second album. Yeah. Um, was that a real minefield? Um, I tried not to think of it that way. I just got on with my work. And Ronnie and I had also written all of the material for the first two albums. It was all, all done. We had, we'd been writing for so many years. Remember I told you, you know, we were years demoing and sending tapes off. So we had lots and lots of material in stock. And of course, Bridge of Spies has overshadowed everything because it was a quadruple platinum debut album. But Rage was a platinum album. So it's still sold by the Bucketful. Amazing. But there was no China in your hand, so it's kind of difficult. But I tried not to think about it. I just put stuff out that I believed in or battled with the record company to put stuff out that I believed in. Yeah. And apart from the big hit singles, we were also an album band. We shifted tons of albums, irrespective of sort of the single side. So I tried to take confidence in that. But, it, you know, funnily enough, when... When you look at people like Westlife, mm. who had something like 2,000 number one hit singles, you know, like everything, <laughs> everything they ever put out goes to number yeah. one. Mm. And it must be really hard to think if something doesn't go to number one, it wasn't a success. Mm. So I tried not to think that way. I tried to think of China in your hand as a freak and not think it'll happen again. I mean, we've all, we've all heard songs which we thought, this should be number one. Mm. I remember part of that sort of crowd of people that I put you in, Spandau Ballet, I can't yeah. remember what track it was. It was an album track, never got to number one. And I remember thinking, that, that is absolutely every, it's crying out, yeah. crying out to be a number yeah. one. It's a matter of 
so I think we just have to sort of yeah. quietly deal with those demons and not yeah, worry about yeah. it and too much. Some, some things get to number one and you just think, I don't understand why this is at number one. Yeah. Um, let's talk about some of the outfits. I mean, di um, did you get away with it or were some of your outfits migraines waiting to happen in the 80s? Not many. When I look back at pictures of myself, I, I'm not embarrassed no. at all. I think I had quite, um, I'm quite a low-key dresser. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you see people in the kind of Choose Life Wham t-shirts, um, leg warmers, and I, I never dressed like that. So who decides what you're going to wear for the show? I do. Um, always pick my own clothes. Um, and do you decide on the rest of the band as well? I do nag them because they they go like, oh, not makeup again, and oh, I don't want to wear that again. So I have to nag them to be a bit neat and tidy because um, every band has their own look, and we're not, you know, to pow. I like to pow to be well turned out. I, I was in Levi 501s and a good leather jacket. Yeah. The only thing I ever wore that I'm slightly embarrassed about was I had a Vivian Westwood puffball skirt, which under the lights of Top of the Pops wilted <laughs> and met between my legs. And I looked like I was in Blackadder <laughs> pantaloons. And that's about the only thing. When I look, I. To so be honest, I've looked at all the loads of photos of you from the 80s, and I you look, look fantastic cool. in I all I look of them. Really cool. You do look cool, my darling. <laughs> and, and when um, I do all the 80s festivals now, and people turn up in in, in essentially fancy dress, mm. I'm like, this isn't a freak show, mm. and I didn't dress like that at mm. all, mm. you know. So, and I haven't changed my look now. I'm still in in, mm. you know, well I've got my trainers on. But I'm normally in cowboy boots, biker boots. She's currently in the bra and panties yeah. in the pub. It's very embarrassing. <laughs> uh, bra and panties, yeah. And I'm just, I don't look back on hardly anything. I think uh, the boys more, there were a few mullets, definitely a few mullets. Ronnie had a mullet. And also rolling the sleeves of your jacket up, a la Miami Vice. Yes, you know? yes, yes. Which apparently you were almost going to be in. Yeah, well, yeah, should yeah. we talk about that before we, we segue into a track? Sure, yeah. I got a call, or my management did, and um, they wanted me to play Don Johnson's wife. Mm. Um, and I couldn't. I was on tour with Brian Adams. Um, so they gave it to Sheena Easton. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. So was she supposed to be a singer? Yeah, you, it, was, it, was, it, it wasn't really a stretch of the brain. Or, no. you know, I was supposed to be a singer that he falls in love with and I mm. get shot. Oh. And at the time, Heart and Soul was huge, so they wanted me. Anyway, I was on tour with Brian Adams. I couldn't get out of the tour. But anyway, cut to about 25 years later. Somebody can, can, can check it out, I'm sure. Don Johnson was appearing in Guys and Dolls on the West End mm. probably 10 years ago, maybe slightly less. Mm. And I got tickets. I got VIP tickets, and I waited to chat to him mm. to say to him, listen... I've got to tell you the story. <laughs> and he had this gigantic bodyguard hovering right. over him. So I'd say, so anyway, so my name's Carol Decker and I was in a UK band called To Pow and I had this huge hit in the States. And do you remember when Sheena Easton was in Miami Vice? And he went, That was yeah. going to be me. Said, that was meant to be me. And he went, and he went that's nice, dear. <gasps> he hadn't he got a clue what I was talking about. And I thought he was going to go, Oh my God, this is amazing. I remember yes. that, yeah. And As any like, normal person would. Sorry, John, John Johnson. No, 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 but he's Don Johnson and I... And he I needs to get over himself, sorry. And I had one hit record 2,000 years ago. But to <laughs> me, it's one of my big moments. It's one of my cocktail stories. It's one of my anecdotes. Totally. He had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> that is so funny. Well, we're rapidly coming to the end of this part of our extended interview with Tapau's Carol Decker. Part two takes us up to date with their brand new critically acclaimed album, Pleasure and Pain, complete with UK tour. But to play us out of part one, I picked one of my favourites from Tapau's classic collection. We'll both see you for part two, but until then, from me, Nick Randall, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>